This episode of New Politics was recorded on the 5th of March, 2021, and recorded on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast. In this episode, the Liberal Party and its continuing man problem, the Aged Care Royal Commission, can this government fix up any of the problems it's created over the past 20 years, and we look at the Media Bargaining Code that does absolutely nothing for public interest journalism. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis. I'm sitting here with a defamation lawyer. The man problem continues for the federal government and there's a familiar face that keeps popping up whenever there's an allegation of untoward and unwanted sexualised behaviour and harassment of women. The Attorney-General, Christian Porter, is in a great deal of trouble with rape allegations from 1988. Neither he nor Prime Minister Scott Morrison claim to have read the allegations contained within a 30-page dossier, even though Morrison received a copy of it last week. But that didn't stop Morrison publicly declaring that Porter denies all the allegations and it didn't stop Christian Porter from denying his guilt in these matters. And it's hard to know how to make a denial against allegations if you're not exactly sure what those allegations are, but that's what's happened. And now the entire Liberal Party has come out in support of their man. This is what Scott Morrison said back in 2019. We had one of the early questions on, on, on rape and women being raped and, and, the, and the lack of reporting. And one of the things that often happens with that is they're not believed and their stories are not believed. And it's important that their stories are believed and, and that they know that if they come forward, their stories will be believed. And so, you know, women in those circumstances, I think, um, should have a greater sense of confidence that if they tell their stories, that they'll be believed. More recently, just last week, here he is talking about the rule of law at the International Women's Day breakfast event. To see when the rule of law does not operate in a country and it is not respected in its processes and those who are authorised and have the authority and the experience and the ability and the training to deal with these sorts of issues, where that isn't present, those who suffer most are women. We must, in this country, understand that one of the key protections for women against the disrespect of women in this country is the rule of law. There is no substitute for it. There is no alternative justice system. There is no alternative law enforcement system. There is only one. And we must redouble our efforts to make sure it is as effective as possible. Again, it's a case where all of these issues that relate to the rights of women to be safe in the society, to be protected against sexual assaults and to be believed when rape and sexual assaults occur, as Morrison himself said back in 2019, it seems to apply to everyone else except for members of his government. Christian Porter is taking off two weeks for mental health leave, but his position as Attorney General and as a politician seems to be untenable. It's probably time for him to go. My friend Andrew Shields reminded me of the case of the Irish Attorney General Connolly, who had a guy who was a friend of his stay over at his place. The guy was a family friend. Turned out that the guy was also a murderer, and 
when this came out, Connolly resigned instantly. Even though he was innocent of everything, the decent thing to do was to resign because it didn't fit in accord with the notion of what the Attorney General should be. And this is the same with Christian Porter. He is not the office. The office is bigger than him. And we look at the big names, the legal giants who have filled the role of Attorney General in Australia. Deacon, Isaac Isaacs, J.G. Latham, Robert Menzies, Garfield Barwick, Percy Josky. Now, we might not agree with these men's interpretation of the law, but we all agree that they held the law as the paramount ideal and ideology shaping what the nation or the Commonwealth of Australia is. We have now, after George Brandis, conveyances, essentially, junior lawyers who struggle with the more arcane and complex notion of the law. And Christian Porter, who is almost certainly a Certainly, if he's not, then he should be cleared of these charges through a proper, full, frank, independent investigation. For that, he's got to stand aside anyway. Now, if the investigation clears him, he can perhaps be returned to the office. But while there is any doubt of his probity of his fitness, of his character, till these allegations are properly tested, he has no credibility and he's finished. Scott Morrison did say, well, we have to listen to women. He said that quite a few occasions over the past, certainly in 2019. He actually said that earlier on when the allegations of rape within Parliament House came out as well. But at the first opportunity to test his statement, Morrison failed his own test and he listened to the guy. As you mentioned, Porter's situation is completely untenable politically. The rule of law does apply within Australia and there has to be the presumption of innocence, but there also has to be the presumption of justice as well. Not only that justice is being applied, but also to be seen to be applied. And that part of the equation seems to be missing in this particular case. If there's a whiff of an allegation against a teacher, against an executive in a company, against a police officer, against uh, an ambulance officer, against anyone. They stand aside while the investigation happens. Most times, they're cleared for whatever reason. There are, of course, vexatious claims. There are mistaken identities. The victim has to be believed. The process is difficult because the victim has to relive and relive and relive and relive through examination, through cross-examination, through sitting through other cross-examinations, through having their character and fitness as a witness questioned and attacked over and over again. I don't quite know how we fix this problem because the presumption of innocence is crucial to the rule of law. But should we be damaging, often permanently, someone who's gone through this? And... I think it's fair to say that the damage that a convicted rapist goes through isn't near what the victim has gone through. So I think we've got to rethink that too. So far, the responses have been political from the government and that, well, that's understandable. That's what politicians do. They behave in a political manner and try to resolve issues in a political process as well. But this is more than just requiring a political response. And you did mention that it's almost going to be impossible to test the allegations legally. The the complainant did die last year, so that's going to make a legal case virtually impossible. But an inquiry could be initiated to lay out all of the facts, the testimonies, the people who were available from 1988, who knew the woman at the time, at the heart of the incident. There's phone records that can be drawn upon. There's a whole lot of things that can happen within an inquiry if Morrison decides to 
call one. And he's actually the only one that can realistically call an inquiry into this. And there has been a lot of calls within the community to initiate an inquiry. And that's probably going to be the only result available to him. He can behave politically for as long as he wants. There won't be a legal trial. Um, That's probably totally out of the question. But he can initiate an inquiry into what went on back in 1988 and what has happened since that time. It's well documented, apparently, uh, but she kept a lot of documents, a lot of journal records, a lot of evidence. I note the Sydney Morning Herald traced down the debating team that Porter was captain of in 1988, who travelled to Sydney for this event where the rape happened. They all believed her over him. The South Australian coroner is opening an investigation, which I think might not end well because the coroner has very wide-ranging powers. New South Wales police declined to open an investigation, saying that the woman had died, so it would be very hard to make a charge stick. That is what it is. So it could be that this coronial inquiry makes things worse for Porter. Not that we care about that, whether things are made better or worse for him, but that justice is done. And justice has seemed to be done. And if he's if he's innocent, his name can be cleared. If he's not innocent, then hopefully uh, justice can take its course. Well, whether there's an inquiry held into this or not, and Morrison so far has been determined not to hold an inquiry, and that's probably going to be the likely outcome of all of this for as long as Morrison is the Prime Minister, of course. There is already a lot of material on the public record about Christian Porter's anti-women behaviour, his range of allegations about his behaviour from university days. I found out that he was actually at university for for 10 years, and that's actually a long time to be on campus. And not only are those allegations being made from his university days, but also as a member of parliament as well. There was the Four Corners report that was broadcast on the ABC last year. But the revelation from 1988, it seems to fit into a pattern of behaviour of Christian Porter. I think a... uh good lawyer could uh, bring in questions of his guilt just based on his behaviour. Apparently, Four Corners knew of the 1988 incident, but for whatever reason, probably because their legal team thought it might not be worth the risk of a defamation claim, kept it out of the report. The report was damning enough in terms of what type of character he had. There were rumours circulating around about a woman who'd committed suicide, but we didn't know when or where or when this came out. It filled in a a piece of the puzzle that Four Corners report had left out. He's finished. And that's all we can say. He's, He's finished. Well, it is starting to resemble an episode of House of Cards, but Malcolm Turnbull has also come into the picture as well. So he was speaking at the Adelaide Writers Week last week, and I'm not sure if these were throwaway comments or what he was actually doing. Now, he on stage, he did say, well, it's now said that the woman suicided, but did she? And that's thrown a different perspective into what went on a year ago or what went on some time ago. Now, Malcolm Turnbull is no fool, He knew that his comments would be reported. It was in a public forum at the Adelaide Writers' Week. Why would he have made this comment? Is it political mischief or is he trying to correct the record? Does he feel guilty about receiving the the report some time ago and not acting upon it? It's hard to know what's going on here. For all my trenchant and continual criticisms of Malcolm Turnbull, I've never thought him a lunatic. He never was a ratbag. And I will be fair, as far as I can tell, he's always treated women with the utmost respect and dignity and 
and really never treated them any different from men. I stand by every other criticism I've ever made of him before I go on, by the way. <laughs> he was a disaster as a prime minister. But fair is fair. He's If Bob Catter, say, who cultivates this image of being a, a ratbag because it helps him, if Bob Catter had got up and said, oh, I'm not sure if she'd We'd all roll our eyes a little one, say, yeah, good one, Bob. You know, let, let's go back to whatever it was you were talking about before. But when Malcolm Turnbull says it, it makes you pause. I still don't understand if, if he knows something or if he was just throwing it out there. It doesn't seem like the type of political mischief that he'd do either. So I, I, I'm not quite sure how to process it. Well, it's hard to know exactly what he's up to. But whatever the case is with Malcolm Turnbull, we can certainly say that Scott Morrison's actions or his responses so far have been quite inadequate. Grace Tame, she's the current Australian of the Year and a survivor. She was more forthright about Scott Morrison's response to all of this. Here she is at the National Press Club speech last week. When the Prime Minister responded to these first set of allegations, he used the phrase, as a father... Um, and he said he had to have a chat with his wife, Jenny, before he was able to, you know, front the media and speak. What do you make of that and what do you make of the rhetoric and the way he's handled those allegations? It shouldn't take having children to have a conscience. And actually, on top of that, having children doesn't guarantee a conscience. I've noticed that criticisms of Morrison and his responses to the rape culture within his own party and of, of sexual assault of women in society, these criticisms are becoming more strident within the media. More journalists are starting to call him out. So far on all of these issues, Morrison has just been all words and no action. He's more or less just trying to get the photo opportunity happening, trying to look like a good bloke who's doing things. But this has been a total failure. Words do matter, but action has to be taken as well. Morrison hasn't proposed any legislative reform. He hasn't announced any new programs or policies. He hasn't proposed a new code of conduct for parliamentarians or how to reform the Liberal Party to make sure that these cover-ups don't happen anymore. He, he denied the need for an inquiry over the allegations against Christian Porter and the death of the woman who has made the allegations. Standing up at a podium and talking about the issue isn't going to change very much at all unless it's followed up with actions. The rule of law is, of course, crucial to any Westminster parliamentary system. What it essentially means is that at the centre of any governmental or even societal action, there is an adherence to the law of the land. Now, applied properly, stupid laws get removed when their impracticality is found out, either through courts or through just pure the administration of them. Certain laws remain in play. The Pentecostal belief, I think, rejects the rule of law, saying that it displaces God. Also, a lot of neoliberalism rejects the rule of law because it sees it as inefficient, that the market will actually fix a lot, that laws, particularly laws pertaining to the regulation of business, are inefficient. We have a neoliberal Pentecostal prime minister, and so when he talks of the rule of law, I question his, one, understanding of it, and two, belief in it. Well, speaking of the rule of law, Morrison said that he didn't actually read the allegations that were contained within that 30-page dossier. 
Porter didn't actually read the allegations, but yet they both made assertions that even though they hadn't read the allegations, that they completely denied those allegations. So it's, as the Attorney General, if that happened to me, well, I'd be wanting to read those allegations. As the Prime Minister, if allegations were made against the Attorney General that I was the one that who, who appointed that person, well, I'd want to read those allegations as well. So... It, how can you deny what you don't know? If he'd said, look, I haven't read the document, that's bad anyway. But at least there's a level of deniability of, well, I didn't read it, so I can't comment on it. But to say I haven't read the document and I reject all the claims, uh, first year university or even probably year 11 or 12 should have taken that out of your system as a defense. It's not the action of innocent people. An innocent man, it seems to me, would have denied it. And of course, you have the absolute right to deny claims made against you. Stepped aside. I'm asking the Prime Minister to open a formal independent inquiry to clear my name and then looked at the consequences from there. It seems to me a guilty person would avoid all examination into the case. Now, I could be wrong. It could be that his mental health has been so badly affected he's not thinking clearly by a false claim of a terrible thing that's happened. So there might not be any legal ramifications to come out of this incident, but the Political repercussions are, are massive, both for Christian Porter and for the government as well. Governments usually hope that these types of issues blow over until a new issue comes in to replace the old one. But I'm, I'm just not sure if that's going to be the case here. Morrison is resisting all the calls for an inquiry. So whether that's a judicial inquiry or a civil inquiry to find out what happened back in 1988 and also the circumstances leading to the death of the complainant in June last year. And I think that for as long as Morrison keeps resisting an inquiry, this is going to remain as a political problem for the government for a long, long time. They said that the end of the matter would be his um, press conference on whatever day it was, Tuesday. That was wishful thinking. There are a lot of angry women. There are a lot of highly upset survivors who see collectively their whole stories just being explained away again by privileged men who really have no right to comment. There's been another shift and there's a scenario in which this will bring the government down very badly, whether it forces an early election. I know Zali Stegel, for example, independent member for Warringah, has questioned the government's credibility on this issue. I'm sure she's not the only one. It, it's not over, is what I'm saying, as, as much as he wants it to be over. It's not. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, the report from the Royal Commission into Aged Care. Will it lead to real reforms within the sector or will it just become another government marketing exercise? No one would know me And I think that would be cool I'd paint a picture of my life upon your wall And use the colours that have made us see so 
final report from the Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety has been released and it's an eight volume publication of almost 3,000 pages outlining all the problems in aged care across Australia and it provides 148 recommendations for how the sector can be improved. The report outlined widespread substandard care across many services across Australia, over 30,000 assaults during 2019, and that includes physical and sexual assaults. There's poor diets, low staffing levels, and a system that has neglected the needs of aged care residents for well over two decades. The report was released this week, but the media was only provided with copies of the report at the same time Scott Morrison released the report. And once again, it showed that it's a government that doesn't really want to be scrutinised over anything. They were very quick to shirk their responsibilities in this issue. The ministers who were present at the launch of the report, Scott Morrison, Greg Hunt and Richard Colbeck, they all suggested that the problems in aged care have been caused by successive governments, but failing to point out that the Liberal National Government has been in office for 19 of the past 25 years. Can the government, or a government that essentially has been the cause of these problems over the years, can they be effective in implementing solutions to the problems that they've actually created? No, (laughs) they can't. The privatisation model has failed. It has failed and it has failed. And when they restructure it, it fails again. It starts in Australia in really 1977 when John Howard becomes treasurer. In New South Wales, Nick Greiner sold off public services left, right and centre. Those of us who are old enough to remember the $99 third-party green slip never went close. Competition was going to force prices down, just force prices up. In Victoria, of course, Jeff Kennett sold off things like he was a demonic auctioneer, sold things off like they were his own personal things to sell off. It enriched neither state and it led, in New South Wales at least, to the excesses of the O'Farrell, Baird, Berejiklian governments that have been total disasters. Awash with corruption, awash with dodgy deals, awash with a lack of legitimacy that no government in a first world country should ever go anywhere near being. Now, you mentioned that John Howard was the treasurer back in 1977. That's a long, long time ago. I've forgotten how long John Howard was actually in politics for. 1977, but 20 years later, he's the prime minister. He started reforming the aged care sector in about 1997, and that's when the Aged Care Act was changed substantially. And that also started off the private sector involvement in the delivery of aged care services, the corporatisation of the sector with large corporate entities becoming involved in social service delivery. And that's why many of the, the problems that exist today, that's that's where it all commenced. A government hands-off approach, very few regulations, an almost don't care, don't ask approach, involvement of businesses that are mainly interested in profits 25 years ago. That's why we're in this situation today. It was pushed by extremely wealthy people who wanted to pay even less tax than they did and who wanted to get their hands on what they saw were profitable services and industries. I don't think government should do some things. Manufacture is probably better done privately. I don't think education works privately. Health does not work privately. Law and order does not work privately, at least in terms of courts, police, prison systems. And with prison systems, I'm including parole and other rehabilitation I think we've found a lot of con artists, spivs, crooks, 
go into those fields and really make things worse. Well, there is a whole range of social services that the private sector shouldn't be anywhere near, and and aged care facilities, that's one of those areas. In 2019, the aged care providers within Australia, they made $1.7 billion in profit. That's just profit. That's not the amount of money that goes into the sector. That's the profit that was made across the aged care sector by for-profit providers. So Bupa is the largest for-profit provider in, in Australia. They had $663 million in total income. Opal had $527 million. There's Estia, which the Seven West media proprietor, Kerry Stokes, he owns $100 million worth of uh, shares in that company. There's Regis. There's there's a whole host of other aged care providers. There's, there's the Moran Group that had strong affiliations with the Liberal Party. They're not such a major player anymore. But all of these major providers, they've got strong links with the Liberal Party, either through... Acting as a donor, in the case of Kerry Stokes, he's a big supporter of the Liberal Party, but there's strong links between the Liberal Party and these aged care providers. And when you're looking at a for-profit component within a social service provision that generates $1.7 billion in profit in one year, well, there are issues that really need to be looked at here. That, That relationship between these corporations, government, and the needs of the public. Yeah. Now, some of the church-run aged care facilities are very good, and even some of the privately run are very good. The privately run tend to be very expensive, though, which speaks to the priority of neoliberalism. The more money you have, the more you can work the system to your advantage. The less money you have, then you're clearly not worthy. The system is run at a federal level, but we've noticed with this government in particular, if things go wrong, and the the COVID-19 pandemic showed the weaknesses in the system. If things go wrong, they try to blame the states. And that's another thing that privatisation does, particularly when it's semi-private The blame can be spread around, but no responsibility can be taken. A lot of the deaths in Victoria were from uh, aged care facilities. And we found these deaths were because of a workforce that was inadequate, understaffed. You couldn't take time off because if you took time off, you didn't get paid. And if you didn't get paid, you know, obviously went on to other stuff. So people were turning up to work sick, which in an aged care facility is dangerous at the best of times and during a pandemic is catastrophic. Now, media media marketing, media management and spin is never too far away for this government, even if it's an important issue such as an aged care report from the Royal Commission. And during the launch, I noticed that both Scott Morrison and Greg Hunt, they tried to personalise the, the entire announcement. They inserted their own experiences as part of the launch, how their fathers died in aged care. But they mainly spoke about how wonderful the services were, that they had the best staff working there. It was all fantastic. And it just seemed a little bit tone deaf. And it was almost like a, a gonzo style of politics where they were constantly inserting themselves within the picture and, and personalising the story. But I've got a personal story to tell as well. So my father was in an aged care home as well. Now, initially, it wasn't too bad. The care was good. The meals were okay. It seemed like a pretty good home. But then on the first day of January 2017, that's when the funding cuts to aged care homes all across Australia were first implemented. And in that particular home, the quality of food deteriorated. There were less staff available. The place became disorganised. It became unclean and unhealthy. And he died a few months after those cutbacks were made. 
Those cutbacks of $1.2 billion were announced by Scott Morrison in 2016, who was treasurer at the time. And that caused a lot of grief for a lot of families all across Australia. And here he is making an announcement about the the poor state of aged care homes across Australia, as if he had nothing to do with it, and inserting himself again into the picture, as if to relate to the pain and suffering that many families have had to go through in the past and are still going through now. And now suggesting that his government is going to be the one to resolve the problems that they've been incapable of solving in the past. As far as I'm concerned, it's an absolutely despicable story that they're trying to create here. It's just awful. It's a government that loves picking on the vulnerable, the weak, the unfortunate. It's a government that will cut the NDIS to fund other things, to fund the actually what they funded with that was the uh, surplus because the economy matters more to them than looking after the poor. It's a, a really terrible situation and I don't quite know how they see this in any way as being a good thing or something to be proud of or an achievement. There's some really mixed up priorities in here. Well, it's probably a long-term process that reform of the aged care sector needs to go through. And in the Banking Royal Commission, there were 76 recommendations that, that were made. Out of those 76 recommendations that were made, two years later, 45 of those are yet to be implemented, and that's most of the important ones, and four have been completely abandoned. This is a government that doesn't like implementing recommendations unless it's towards its advantage. So it should be interesting to see how many of the 148 recommendations from the aged care report are actually implemented. The the report has recommended that whatever is implemented has to be implemented within the next two to five years for it to be successful. But this government is not capable of implementing any of these resolutions. No, they're not. It's a government that doesn't like the work of reform, except when it suits them and when they can spin it to their advantage. It's a government that does not like to make hard decisions against its followers. You know, God forbid that one of the private companies that runs healthcare lose $100 million on a $2 billion profit because it's better for the whole of society that they do. It's a government that doesn't seem to really understand the issues it's dealing with. And I think, too, it's a political system or a political ideology that's starting to unravel. We can look at Trump in the States, who's part of the same movement, and Johnson in Britain. It seems he's about to lose Northern Ireland. You were watching the whole edifice start to tumble and crack. And not only does the emperor have no clothes, the emperor's got nothing substantial to sit on as a foundation. Well, a substantial for-profit component of a social service, that can't just disappear overnight. Although there is a precedent from 2008 when the ABC learning enterprise that managed a substantial part of the early childhood learning sector, that completely collapsed. The government had to step in and they created Good Start Early Learning. That's a not-for-profit entity that essentially replaced ABC Learning at the time and it still exists today. The circumstances in aged care are very similar compared to ABC Learning. ABC Learning was a corporatised enterprise with large shareholdings. There was the involvement of key members of the Liberal and National parties at the time. Profits were built on the back of low staff wages and poor quality care of children. And everything improved once the government took over an essential social service. So that was the situation and the experience of early childhood education. So there's no reason why that can't happen again with aged care as well. 
Yeah. When it comes to protecting the profits of the his donors or hers in New South Wales, they'll act very quickly. When it comes to helping broader society, they'll spin and act slowly in the hope that the issue will go away. The issues have started to not go away, and I think this is going to become a huge problem for them. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, the media bargaining code that does absolutely nothing for public interest journalism. There must be some kind of way out of here Said the joker to the thief There's too much confusion I can't get no While most of the attention has been focused elsewhere, the government has been working towards delivering the news media bargaining code, a new code where technology platforms such as Google and Facebook will be forced to pay large local news providers for their content to appear on their platforms. The organisations that will benefit from this, News Corporation, Nine Network, Seven West Media, The Guardian, ABC and SBS, they're supportive of the code and why wouldn't they be if they're getting money for jam? The Australian Press Council, which is funded by the mainstream media outlets, they've agreed, and of course they would. And the government can enjoy the continued support from these mainstream media outlets for delivering a cash cow to them. Here's the media analyst Peter Cox providing his opinion in an interview on Seven's Sunrise program. Well, the situation is, of course, that this really has nothing to do with journalism, nothing to do with grassroots journalism, that's for sure. This is a group of bully boys, right? We've got on the first hand, we've got the Prime Minister himself wanting to be on the international scene. Look how well that went for us when he accused China of causing the flu. Um, Disaster, right? You've got him trying to tie up News Corp and Fairfax for the next election. So he's trying to flow the money to those two organisations mostly. So this is really not about helping out the small people. This is about achieving political ends, getting himself more publicity on the international stage and looking as though Australia's leading the world. So you don't ba- you're not backing the government here? Oh, absolutely ridiculous. This is purely a political play to tie up the next election. I've got a feeling Peter Cox won't be invited back to Channel 7 anytime soon, but he's pretty much hitting the nail on the head. The media code won't do anything for public interest journalism, and it's mainly about the government keeping the media in its pocket. I've spoken about this before. The the media in this country needs to be broken up. No one should own more than 10% of the sector. We need to have a fully independent watchdog. You need to have a diversity in the media that's not really reflected in our, our mainstream media. The deal basically run by that dynamic intellectual Josh Frydenberg saw everybody but the government get what they want. (laughs) 
it was, you know, a, a lesson in how not to do a deal, but also a, a lesson in how the government pushes its deals in such a way that, or pushes its spin in such a way that they made it look good. Coming out of it, you'd think that Josh Frydenberg was this hard-nosed negotiator who held these big tech corps to account. The other thing, too, is how Google manages to be the good guy in this shows just how one how rotten news corp can be and two how badly the government has misread the room well the media code has been passed by the well it was initiated in the house and it was actually passed by the senate so it's going back to the house for rubber stamping so it's not actually law as we speak yeah it's going to proceed as and become law pretty soon maybe at the next sitting of parliament but i think it shows we've got legislators in canberra that have passed a law that they don't know anything about mm. and i've looked at the legislation it's actually quite flimsy it, it outlines what constitutes a news company details about good faith n- negotiations and for me, this is the best one, that there needs to be 14 days notification of changes to the algorithm and the way that that affects the news feed. Now, not even Facebook would know the full effects of its algorithms and how it's going to likely change its news feeds. And, and no one within Parliament, it would seem, knows what an algorithm is or <laughs> whether it's being amended or, or not. Like It just seems like they've passed this legislation without knowing what's going on. So the details of the deal between Google and media proprietors at the moment. So News Corporation, they were the first ones to sign the deal, of course. Uh, So they'll be receiving $30 million per year from Google for the next five years. Nine Network has signed a similar deal, $30 million over the next five years. Seven West Media, the same sort of deal. Deals have been made with The Guardian, but we're not sure exactly what they are. The, The deal with ABC is still going on. Now... That's just with Google. So that's at least $100 million coming just from Google. Now, if Facebook signs up and it seems like they will sign up or make some sort of arrangement, you can imagine that they'll be doing it for at least $100 million per year for at least the next five years. That's a lot of money going into into legacy media. And all of this money will go to 95% of the media. And of course, 95% of the media is quite supportive of this. And there's a whole range of issues that will affect the way that journalism operates in this country as well. I'd suggest that we won't be seeing too many critical articles being published about Google or Facebook coming up. You know, if I was one of these media proprietors, well, I'd sort of downplay any criticism of Google or, or Facebook as well. And You mentioned before Josh Frydenberg being the intellect behind all of this. He's been coming out quite strongly in the media saying this is great for public interest journalism, but there is nothing at all within the legislation about public interest journalism. It's not even mentioned at all. There's no commitment to it within the legislation. There's no details in the legislation about how these funds that are raised through the code will be spent on public interest journalism. It's just not going to happen. I'm worried I'm going to have to put off uh, two of the gardeners and three of the kitchen hands at home if this money doesn't come through to us. Well, we, we are one of those 4% of the news media that won't be getting any of this. Do you think it's a bit of sour grapes on our behalf that we won't be seeing a cent coming through from these media code deals? It'd be nice to get it, obviously, but we are now not beholden to not criticize Google where it needs to, or Facebook or whomever where it needs to be criticized uh, and of course to praise them where they genuinely deserve praise. I think the government doesn't like independent media at all. 
most of the major scandals of the last uh, seven years or so have been broken by independent media and then picked up by the mainstream. Notable exception, of course, is the Christian Porter rape case, which was broken by uh, Samantha Maiden, and the Christian Porter and Alan Tudge sexual harassment cases, which were broken by Four Corners, and they deserve congratulations for that. But pretty much you can point to True Crime Weekly, Kangaroo Court, Ronnie Salt, Independent Australia, Crikey, for breaking most of the stories. And there are others too, and if, if you're listening and you said, but and I broke this, apologies, and yes, you did. <laughs> It's not really fixing the problem of having an independent media. Money is a distorting tool. So yes, while it would be nice to get it, and and while they should have acknowledged the power and the strength and the value of independent media, I guess the advantage is that we're not beholden to be nice to them when they don't deserve being nice to. Well, there are some smaller niche publishers like Crikey and Junkie Media. They'll receive a small amount of funding. I'm not sure what that is. The details for that haven't been released. And there could be an argument put forward that if you've got at least $100 million so far coming in from Google into legacy media and possibly another $100 million coming in from Facebook as well, well, the, so the argument goes that more money going into legacy media means that they've got more money available to produce public interest journalism. But there's no relationship between those two factors. Like, I'd say that most of this money that comes from Google and Facebook, most of this money will end up in shareholders or proprietors' hands. And in the future, anything that the ABC and SBS receive will be cut from their future budgets. The ABC should be an important and probably even the most important media supplier in the country. The government doesn't like the ABC. The IPA has as one of its 100 points for Australia to abolish the ABC and SBS. Kerry Packer used to rage against the ABC saying that it was really just taking uh, viewers off Channel 9 that he couldn't compete against. Whereas he could compete against Channel 7 and Channel 10, he couldn't compete against, and by compete he meant beat, he couldn't compete against the ABC in terms of the quality of its journalism, the quality of its programming. Channel 9 outrated the ABC, but ratings aren't the only factor in what makes good television. And the current Liberal Party really want to get rid of the ABC despite its importance, particularly in regional area, and that's probably why they haven't got rid of it. Even the National Party couldn't sustain losing the ABC electorally. The future of the ABC is one factor within this media bargaining code, but the biggest factor is still how all of this will be related to or supporting public interest journalism, and there's no clear relationship there. But there's also the bigger question about how it will affect journalism overall. If you've got $30 million coming in from Google each year, each and every year, for example, will we see any critical articles of Google and its relationship with the Chinese government and some of the censorship that it got, got involved with at that particular time? And as an editor or a proprietor, you have second thoughts about publishing these types mm. of negative articles. Uh, yeah, of course you would. I don't see why the media here don't see Google and Facebook as a positive thing as it stands. Because if you set up your web pages, etc., properly, they can help you get people to your pages and eyes on your advertisers, etc., there has been an understanding about this media bargaining code that it's a little bit like 
piss off money where instead of getting Google and Facebook to pay their fair share of tax in Australia, which admittedly would have been a little bit more difficult to set up, would have taken the government a lot more work, of course. They've agreed to these ad hoc arrangements because it means that they can continue to keep doing what they're doing. They'll be essentially left alone. They'll end up paying less money than they would have if they had to pay the correct amount of tax in Australia. Google and Facebook are happy. Rupert Murdoch, Kerry Stokes and Peter Costello are happy. The government is happy because they're guaranteed of getting more political support from the mainstream media. So everyone else is happy except for the Australian taxpayer. And pretty much, especially with this government, you know that it's the taxpayer who is going to cop it again and again and again and again and again. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very, very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It helps keep our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.